I will say that I've enjoyed seeing how all of the folks on film Twitter have actually been relatively normal about this movie. There hasn't been a lot of like acrimony, um, which is uh, uncommon for for that crowd of Twitter users. The folks on on Reddit are uh, speaking of people who react uh, to things. Uh, the folks on Reddit have a thread. Uh, they have different review threads, one for readers and one for non-readers. Oh, that's smart. That's going to be like an important point, I feel like, when we start the episode. Yeah, yes. for sure. This for movie sure. is is one of the rare movies where, at least I think, where this movie hits very differently whether you've read the book or books and whether you have not. The, the, it's too completely different movies if if one or the other is true i 100 percent agree all right well before we go too far then let's start the episode welcome to the extra buttery podcast it's a show about movies tv Anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show! Welcome to the 100th Extra Buttery episode. We've got a really special episode today. We're talking Dune, and we have a special guest. Joining us from Halifax, so we're fully coast to coast on our little podcast now. Welcome, Matt Whelan. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Oh yeah, it's great to have you here. So uh, yeah, this this uh, means that with uh, Jason in Vancouver, myself in Toronto, and Matt in Halifax, we are coast to coast to coast, which is really, really cool. And I mean, as Jason pointed out, this episode is entirely about Denis Villeneuve's Dune. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only a way in my mind. You need to face your fears. I feel like we've been waiting for this movie pretty much since... Uh, maybe since Blade Runner 2049 came out because it was around about then that uh, Villeneuve announced that he was going to be taking on Dune for his ne- next project. And this was delayed a couple times too, right? True, yeah, because of COVID and all that stuff. So uh, we definitely, you know, we almost got there and then, you know, it got kicked bad down the, the calendar a little bit. But I would say like, I mean, speaking from my own experience uh, with Dune beforehand, and Matt will bring you in on this too. I mean, right about the time the project was announced and Villeneuve was said he was going to do this, I hadn't seen the original Lynch version. I hadn't read the book. But then over the next couple of years, I did try to like familiarize myself a little bit more. Saw the 84 film, read the book through end to end. And I really found myself getting into the Dune universe. But I feel, Matt, like you probably... I mean, you, you've you admitted that you are, don't consider yourself a huge Dune fan, but you still probably, you're more familiar with it than either Jason or myself. Well, I've never read the book, so Matt's got this one. Oh, you got, I'm all, got one over on you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. I, I, I'm i definitely not, you know, the world's biggest Dune fan. A friend of mine um, when I was in university was, I mean, this is where 
Dune fans can obviously span a quite a distance. You've got, I mean, it's one of the biggest sci-fi books ever written, American sci-fi books ever written. Huge success. It's in every used bookstore in the world, translated into almost every language books are translated into. Like, this is a massive, massive book. So, you know, a lot of people have read certainly the first book or have come into contact with some kind of Dune media. There was, of course, the movie in 84. There's uh, the sci-fi channel series uh, in the 90s. Jodorowsky's Dune, which came out between five and ten years ago. Which never came yeah, out. Well, the movie never came out, but the documentary did. And then, you know, you've got... And and then for me, people like me, I should say, Dune has been um, made into several PC games, at least three or four different PC games over the years. Like, this is a massive, massive property. So yes, uh, the fact that I've only ever, you know, played some of the games and read the first book is, is amazing. I mean, like, <laughs> not only did Herbert write something like he wrote i think the first six books um around about there and then his son and a friend of his son's took over the mantle and they've been writing prequels and side books and things ever since so i mean this dune lives on even now i don't think we'll ever get more than the maybe the first book or two if we're lucky um but it goes places for sure yeah and i remember like um when when Yodorowsky's Dune, the documentary came out, that was a real peek into just how wild Dune could could be. And it really helped explain how how long in development various Dune projects had been in Hollywood or in independent cinema. And um, it, it went a long way, too, towards sort of showing how a lot of the sci-fi franchises that we ended up seeing first, whether it was Star Trek, the, the, the 60s series or Star Wars or anything that came later owed a bit of a debt to the original book by Herbert, I think. And you, you, you can definitely see some connective tissue between all of it if you look closely enough, which I think is super cool. I was going to say, too, though, like if you knew where the story of Dune goes, your reading into the characters in this movie changes quite a bit. So because there are parts of Dune like... Uh, we'll get into this later, but some of the characters aren't as heroic or as nice as we seem. No, and even like uh, from what I know, just very loosely of what happens to the Paul Atreides character later in the books, which I, I haven't I haven't read, but um, I mean, it gets re- really weird and really wild, and uh, it like his son ends up being like a half sandworm. Um, <laughs> multi thousands of years old being after a period of time. Uh, so, well, what's that uh, Harvey Dent quote? It's like uh, you either die a hero, live long to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, like, if you knew that though, your reading of Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides, I think, is very different. But I don't want to get too far ahead because we got to start from the top. I mean, just to very briefly touch on that, it's that's a very important point, and that's one of those things where, again, like there's lots of movies obviously that come out that are based on books you know you think i think the closest comparison for a very close comparison you can make with this movie is lord of the rings right lord of the rings comes out very much beloved um fantasy series people are like they better not screw this up you know this has to be good and then it comes out and of course it's you know a a modern classic and it's and and book book lovers love it but if you hadn't read lord of the rings and then went to see the the first movie we actually talked about this i think a friend of mine and, and i after the after dune after our screening on saturday and he said when he saw fellowship in theaters 
in the early 2000s. There was obviously somebody in the movie theater who didn't know that it was just the first part of the story. And so when it ends and you have Frodo and Sam just getting into the little boat and riding off and then the credits come up, somebody in the theater just yelled, that's it? <laughs> and I'm like, that could very much happen with this movie because, you know, you're expect I'm expecting, of course, the end. I, I was like, well, I wonder where they're going to end it at. Like specifically, I knew about the point in the story where they were going to end it, but I, I was thinking to myself, like, where is he going to pick to end this, and and what's the mood he's going to try to set when he ends this? So then, so I was waiting, but it was like opening weekend, so I'm like, these people are they're going to be fans, you know? They're going to know that this is just like the first part. But the, like, it's really clear in the title card. It says part one. That was a smart decision. Yeah, the Lord of the Rings ones, that's not so clear. It's just subtitle. It doesn't say one, two, or three. It doesn't denote what part. That's right. Um, But that's I just right. want to start at the top because I noticed on Letterboxd that Robert Snow gave this a five-star rating. I mean, you can't see me right now because this is an audio podcast, but I'm shrugging a little bit. Um, I'm going to start with you, Rob. So like, what makes... In your opinion, what makes this the perfect film? I know that when you're looking at five star ratings on Letterboxd, Jason, I know that you are um, you apply a very, very specific lens to them because, yeah, I mean, five out of five does suggest a perfect film. And I will I'll be first to admit that I guess if you if you could rate a movie objectively, which you really can't. There's definitely flaws in this that might bring you down, bring it down to like a four and a half, maybe. But I don't know. I was just so excited to see this thing after so much time and to see it done so accurately, you know, to the best of their ability, could being an adaptation um, with all of the absolute perfect cast choices and just that kind of intangible thing that Villeneuve brings to the screen with all of his sci-fi adaptations with these, you know, impeccably production designed worlds, uh, integration of visual effects and practical effects. Uh, I mean, it all just, it, it, it felt very, very cohesive and it as cohesive as it could be for only being half of the story. So, so I'm going to debate you on the casting part, but I okay. want to go to Matt cause I, I didn't see his rating. So what did, I don't know, Matt, do you have like a rating thing going on or what did you think? Overall, uh, so I did rate it on on Letterbox. I'm still a relatively new Letterbox user, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm you know I'm gonna get used to rating my movies more. Um, I'm not a person who I, I, I'm I'm very much like Robert Ware. I I don't think you can objectively rate movies because I mean you know Point Break is one of my favorite movies of all time and <laughs> the original and, right not the remake. Oh, oh listen, I don't even count. <laughs> there were, they made a remake. I, I wasn't aware of this. Um, but it's like you know good response or, or a movie like. You know, uh, another silly movie like Starship Troopers or RoboCop or or um, amazing stuff. something exactly. I like those movies. You can't compare that to Dune. So anyway, to answer your original question, I I I think I gave Dune either four or four and a half stars. I, I mean, I was I've been looking forward to this movie since Villeneuve was announced it, uh, as being attached because it's one of those properties where take it's a very it takes a very special creative force to direct a movie like this to, to, kind of, to push this through and i and i'm a big big villeneuve fan i've seen almost everything he's made with the with a couple of small exceptions go canada that's right uh, canada or quebec zone um oh yeah that's for true. sure <laughs> uh, i don't know how he considers it himself but um but you know as soon as i saw that that he was attached because i mean i saw blade runner and i thought you know, and I'm a I like Blade, the original Blade Runner, and so to see the 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 sequel be as good as it was, I said, look, this this guy can make anything, and I'll watch it, and it'll be great. So I'm like, I wonder what he's doing next. And then I heard, you know, almost right away, it's it's you know, Villeneuve's gonna take on Dune, and I was like, 
great. This is a movie that actually needs to be remade. You know, having the re having a discussion of what movies should actually be remade, kind of artistically speaking. Dune is high on that list. It's it's you know, Lynch took a really good whack at it in '84. Didn't succeed really, but you know, the, he didn't have everything working in in his favor, and he also wasn't, in my opinion, the right choice for for Dune. Lynch is not a sci-fi guy. You don't get him to direct something like that. He also disowned the film after its release, right? Like it wasn't his. Vision. Yeah, I think he faced a lot of studio pressure and studio meddling and things like that. And he didn't get the budget he wanted. And, and you know, the classic, the classic tale tales from, you know, the 1970s and 1980s. You know, I, I don't even compare this to that. But I saw that Villeneuve was directing and I said, you know, this is someone who he's got vision. He's got clout now. I mean, Arrival, which is the closest comparison of his filmography that you could kind of compare to Dune. I'm like Arrival was, you know really creative and really well crafted and i was like this guy can actually make a go of this and then when the details started to come out about who was attached like because casting was always going to be like a big question um and it's like timothy chalamet's paul i'm like oh that's you know this was i think maybe after i had saw call me by your name and i was like okay like that's an interesting choice and like you know it, but every single cast announcement, like, I think they did it in a first block. Like, I think they announced Isaac as uh, a Duke Atreides pretty early on. And I love Oscar Isaac. So I was like, man. But like, anyway, every single person they cast, I'm like, these are great casting choices. Yeah. The only ones that I was kind of concerned about, I think, when I first read was like, I wasn't sure about Jason Momoa and I wasn't sure about, um, about Zendaya. Because I, I wasn't really familiar with a lot of her work. So I was like, I, I don't know about about that casting choice but i was like eh, I'm, i trust again i trust villeneuve i trust his 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 vision but either way you know as far as I, how i felt about the movie itself i mean i i i'm gonna rewatch it probably a few more times and i'm gonna have a few more conversations with folks too and that sometimes affects my rating do i think it's a you know a, a five out of five which to me doesn't mean perfect to 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 debate you yeah. Jason. <laughs> five doesn't mean perfect five just means you know this was the best in terms of like the virtues of a of a fantastic classic film, did it have it? I think so, or I think it came really, really close. Fair, no, that's point taken. So, it, you know, I loved every major aspect about it. I had a few small qualms, but nothing really huge. I was entertained throughout. I think the only thing was at the end of the movie, I was like, "Great, I'm ready for part two. Um, but to your point about technology, I agree. Lynch was probably not the right choice, and technology really holds something like this back. Um, we have all the means now to create like something that's really massive in scale. Um, and it doesn't look like toys, which like to Villeneuve's credit, he's always been really good with like showing huge scale. Um, I actually think Blade Runner 2049 is a more comparable film than Arrival, but um, neither here nor there. So I actually had a lot of trouble um, rating this film. Like I try to be as objective as I can. But what it came down to is I feel really uncomfortable giving a rating when the story is not complete yet. Like as a standalone film, I don't think it really works because it it, it leaves on a cliffhanger um, and Paul doesn't conquer his enemies. So at least in Fellowship of the Ring, you got like the big battle and then everyone kind of goes their separate ways. But there's like a clear arc for some of them, say like Boromir or whatever. But I think visually... Like, having seen this in theaters, this is probably one of the most impressive films I've seen. So, technically, it's just awesome. But story-wise, I thought there was a lot of stuff lacking. And I definitely felt that if you didn't know the backstory, if you didn't know the world going in beforehand, 
I don't think Villeneuve really explains very well, like all the things that's going on. I think there are a lot of things that are just kind of mentioned in passing. We'll get to that later, but is there like a a place you guys want to start in terms of dissecting the movie? Because I thought the introduction uh, without the narrator, without Princess Rulin, like in 1984, was really important. Yeah, because I mean, uh, like the first we start like on Dune with some voiceover from uh, Chani, right? Played by Zendaya. Which I don't think is a right choice. Like, I, I feel like Irulan is a better choice because she's, she's like, well-versed in the politics of it. And she's more of, like, an all-knowing power rather than Chani, who's been a Fremen in her entire life. Like, what does she care about all the other stuff? But anyway. I guess it depends, like, uh, getting back to your point about story. Like, you know, uh, how are you framing our perspective on the whole thing? Are we seeing it from the kind of, like, macro intergalactic politics thing which is kind of like what the princess arulan thing does or are we is it more of a kind of like arrakis based like the people of dune kind of their perspective on the events you know we're getting it kind of with them and that and when paul arrives and becomes one of them maybe it'll feel a bit more organic to kind of come at it from that perspective because i don't know i mean sometimes i feel like with sci-fi regardless of uh who wrote the source material or if it's a, a movie or a show or whatever, sometimes if it starts with this big info dump of like, here are all of, here's the lore and here's everything going back thousands of years and blah, blah, blah. I mean, unless you were a really big, hard sci-fi fan, that can be a little bit alienating and there's a lot to process. So sometimes maybe starting on like a more um, emotional front can be a, an easier way in. I don't know. I think Villeneuve's really good at the emotional stuff, like the way he uses sound and just the way he directs the actors. I I like Ridley Scott for this reason. It's because he's really good at fleshing out all the politics in his universe. I think the Harkonnen and the, not Harkonnen anymore, it's Harkonnen. Harkonnen, yeah. We've been saying it wrong our entire lives. Yeah, so Harkonnen, the correct Finnish way to say it, I guess. So Harkonnen and Atreides. So in the original 1984 movie, like we, we are told that their feud goes back for a long time. In this film, I didn't get that their feud was very personal. I think it would have been nice to introduce all the politics stuff first so we have like a basic understanding of what's going on. And I don't think we even see the Baron and the Harkonnens until like what, half an hour, almost an hour into the movie? Like we see them on the screen? You definitely see um, Robin, the Duke's nephew. You see him right. in the introduction. When Chani's character is talking about, well, actually I wanted to touch on that really very, very briefly. So wh- how I saw the introduction working was um, cause I, th- that's the first thing I noticed. I didn't know what the introduction was going to be. I knew there would be one. I was wondering yeah. how they were going to handle that. Um, and the, 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 the Chani voiceover introduction I thought was interesting. Cause I think Robert's totally right where it's, it's, you have, it's really Arrakis focused. It's really like those characters focused. And I also thought it was very much, um, like Paul focused and what, and by that, I mean, Paul spends most of the first part of the movie just having these visions and he doesn't know what they mean and he can't understand them. And I think that that's how it's supposed to be placed. It's supposed to give you just a little bit of a primer on because Paul's been dreaming about Arrakis for 
potentially months or years. And I I, I felt that's what uh, what that mm-hmm. was setting up. But in terms of yeah, you're absolutely right. In terms of you know, it does it set up the 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 political backstory. I think I agree with you in the sense of that's one of the weakest points of the movie in terms of narrative. Um, in the book, it's it's much 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 more political. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more of that. You know, one of the key plot points in the book that's not really touched on much at all in the movie is, um, you know, from basically the page one of the book, uh, they talk about the Atreides know that there's a traitor among them and they don't know who it is, but they know there is one. That's right. And that's a that's a plot point that's really not touched at all in the movie. And I thought that was a little bit of a miss. I know it was like you got to jettison some stuff aside. This movie is so densely packed, so it's like you do have to cut some stuff, and it's and I'm sure it was a hard choice on on the screenwriters in terms of okay, what are we gonna cut? I think that was one of them. And if you're gonna cut that, I think it's okay to cut some of the political intrigue backstory. It's just like I think they simplified it to, and you could definitely criticize this. They simplified it down to Harkonnen bad, Atreides good. Yeah, you know, and it's it, I really felt that that's what they they decided to do. Is that the right choice? I don't know, but I don't think it really requires to know. Like you just know that the Harkonnens and the Atreides have a past. They hate each other. Uh, the Harkonnens are a very powerful faction. And they're looking for more power always. And the, the Atreides are more of an honorable faction. And they are, you know, trying to increase the power and presence of their own house. But they also, they kind of set it up from the very beginning that they're a lot more, they're a lot more moral. Uh, and they see themselves as like this force for justice at the very least if not good at least they have some kind of sense of justice you don't get much of a, a sense either in Villeneuve's film of like the presence of the emperor you, yeah. you don't see him on screen no you'd, you'd see a few delegates of, of his come to uh Caladan in that one of the opening scenes to kind of do the Passover the transfer of the the um the thief of Arrakis um, but you don't get a sense exactly of like all of the kind of weird twisty influences of the other great houses in the Landsrad, as they call it, and what exactly the Emperor is trying to achieve by temporarily removing the uh, Harkonnens from control of Dune just so that he can push the the uh, Atreides into control so that he can then stage this sort of hidden attack or, you know, this betrayal, you know, because he can't get rid of the Atreides through more overt means. So it's that kind of like shuffling around that takes a bit longer to understand, I think, in in Villeneuve's film. So that's why I think the politics is really important because it elevates the story above some like mopey, you know, messiah hero boy, you know, who has weird dreams. Now you have to admit, though, how much how much of your um, anger is directed at Chalamet because of <laughs> part of it? Like, I, I don't think he's a bad choice. I think the way they had written Paul Atreides, he was a good choice. There's certain characterizations of Paul that I, I just didn't I didn't agree with. So um, the politics, I thought, was missed because then it, it's kind of like House Atreides versus the world versus uh, Atreides versus Harkonnen, which is what we get in the film. I just think that when, you know, Paul reaches his lowest point, the fact that he's got the Emperor and the Harkonnen against him is a much more formidable foe than where we had left off. Um, I think him dream about Chani is like, emotionally interesting for him but in the broader you do universe i think he had nightmares about um was it the the water of life 
Um, I thought that was more important for him to dream about and not necessarily some random girl that he's going to fall in love with. Who who he doesn't marry um, in the books. It's just kind of cast aside, really. <laughs> Which is why I kind of feel the loss of Irulan being there um, kind of hurts or makes his character seem a little too flat and heroic, in my opinion. I also didn't like the part um, when we first see the sandworm, so in the original film, they go there and then Duke Leto basically earns the trust of the Fremen because he's like, screw the the spices, let's save the the miners instead. So in the film, in this version, it kind of plays out the same. But you also get the scene where like Paul kind of wanders out and he like sniffs the dust and he gets a little high. And then he ends up needing to be saved by, I think it was his dad who saves him. I didn't also didn't like that scene because I think it makes him too weak, in my opinion. He just mopes around and I feel like maybe this happens in part two, but that he should take more ownership of the role as the hero. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, from what I remember uh, when I read the book, which was about a year ago now, um, there is an extended portion sort of in the middle, which we'll probably get in the the first part of the sequel, assuming it gets made, um, where he, he is put through a bit of a gauntlet hanging out with the Fremen and he has to... He goes through a series of trials, the first of which was that knife fight that we see at the end of this film. And yeah, his mother is kind of brought into the um, into the cult of the Fremen. She's made into like their own weirding woman, their own Bene Gesserit witch, who's, who's Fre- Fremen <laughs> origin. She gives yeah. birth to her, her daughter, who is like, what, uh, preternaturally intelligent from when she's born and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, when Aaliyah is born, she has like all the powers of a... Bene Gesserit exactly or whatever it is yeah yeah so there's all those there's all those steps along the way and then Paul the whole time is like increasingly taking on more and more responsibility within the siege and um there are tensions with Stilgar and you know there are certain people who think that like you know it doesn't make any sense for Paul to to suddenly have all this power so hopefully they get into that a little bit and then by the time he does eventually like call his first sandworm and and do all of that we feel as an audience that he's earned it and that he's actually he's come a long way from where we first found him on Caladan. what did you think of the fact that there was no inner uh monologue or dialogue i sort of like it better that way i i uh sometimes i feel like voiceover can be a bit of a crutch sometimes especially in sci-fi where they're trying to deliver so much lore well also because they do like it's kind of like the jedi mind trick thing where when we first meet Lady Jessica and Paul, she's like, use the voice. And and it comes off really cheesy. Oh, you don't like the voice. I really liked how they handled the voice. I was I had two I like the the effect they used to like like bring it to life in the theater. But on paper and when when you're watching it, it just looked kind of hilarious. I I two the two of the things I was really wondering about kind of before I went into the I had dinner with friends before we we went and watched it together, and two of kind of our main points of discussion I guess one mostly was was um, how they were going to handle all the inner dialogue. Uh, Herbert's writing style, certainly in the first book, I can't speak to the to the, some of the later books, but he writes his story mostly through the voice of in Paul's head mm-hmm. um, or other characters as well, but like a lot of that. And and of course, in, in the Lynch movie, it's used to great effect in terms like he, he kind of relies on it to tell a lot of the story. And we so we were wondering, what are they going to do for this? Because it feel that would feel very out of date, wouldn't it? You know, it's it's not really done in a modern 
you know, very well-made sci-fi movie anymore. That's not like a, uh, like a neo-noir detective story or something like that. It's, well, they just replaced it with sign language. I thought that was interesting. I thought that the, um, the at least it, that exists in universe, right? Like, Oh, did it? I, I had no idea. The Atreides, uh, I think they call it like finger speak or something like that. <laughs> that exists in universe. You know, you have, you have that to replace some of it. And I was, I thought they were going to have um, my prediction, which I'm glad I was wrong, but my prediction was that they were going to have, um, that they were going to have Duncan Idaho be a bigger player in yeah. the movie in terms of, cause in the, in the book, of course, and in the original movie, Duncan Idaho is a relatively minor character. He's important to Paul, but you know, he just, he performs his role and then, you know, gets killed off. <laughs> um, but in this one, I thought, okay, well maybe they're going to do a thing where Duncan Idaho is going to, uh, you know, Paul is going to be a little bit more clueless than he is like in the book and in the, in the, in the 84 movie. Oh, he's very clueless in this movie. He is, but <laughs> not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I thought, okay, they're going to have somebody like Gurney or Duncan Idaho or something, um, or even Thufir, like explain a lot of things to him, like a fish out of water type thing. That's what I predicted was going to happen. I thought, you know, he was going to be the audience surrogate and they were going to do a lot of that backstory, including politics, including all this stuff. But then I was really glad that didn't happen because, Paul is supposed to be a very, you know, intelligent young man who is being groomed to lead uh, House Atreides. And he knows a lot about that stuff. He doesn't really need to be told a lot of things. And I was glad that they, for the most part, stuck to that. You know, he doesn't need a lot of schooling. Like Even down to one of the things I was kind of surprised at, again, what they did is Paul's a capable fighter. Throughout the movie, he has to to fight. You know, he fights. Uh, he fights Gurney in a training bout early on, and he's, you know, he gets beaten. But Gurney's supposed to be one of the finest, you know, swordsmen in the galaxy, so it makes sense. But you know, he's a he's a he's a capable fighter. He's smart. He doesn't need a lot of things explained to him. All those things, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so, the fact that they were able to get away with both this, I think this is a a credit both to the screenwriters. I think there were three screenwriters. It's mostly Eric Roth, I think. Um, and then, but Villeneuve had his hand in there too. And I think there's a third credited writer. So John Spades yeah. credit to them because they were able to write, you know, a two and a half hour, half retelling of the first half of the book uh, or the first book from dude without using really any voiceover at all or any kind of like exposition, um, Aaron Sorkin style, uh, you know, like having a character that needs to have things explained to them. Like they didn't need that. And I thought that was really great because it was, it, it, I like movies that treat the audience like adults. I like a real, especially sci-fi. Like when there, it's just like, no, you're a smart person. You'll figure this out. We don't need to explain everything to you. It's like, you know, they, for example, one of the things I, I remember uh, reading in the aftermath is I was like, I wonder what all the differences to the, from the book was because I read the book so long ago that I, I couldn't possibly pick out the key differences. And one of the things that they did was they never explained what a mentat was in the entire movie. A mentat. I don't, I don't even think the word mentat is even said. Yeah. There are like, you have both the, the main Harkonnen mentat and, uh, Thufir Hawat, the, the Atreides mentat. And they even do the little calculation trick when he asks them how much the, yeah, the eyes roll back. Yeah. He's like, how much did this trip cost the, uh, the emperor? And he says, it's, you know, 1.3 million credits. Solaris or Solaris. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Um, that they just, there's, there's stuff that they just said, no, 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 we can leave this aside and the audience will pick up that, you know, Hawat is clearly some kind of advisor, you know, he's, 
he's clearly some kind of smart person that's meant to assist the duke and i thought that was i thought those were all really cool touches i i always wonder though like are you okay with them not having all these things are these scenes explaining everything because you already know it well that's it's that's it's a very valid question and i you know it, it it's almost uh, we were talking i think maybe even before the recording but i was saying how you know on reddit they have uh review threads for readers and non-readers and i don't ever remember seeing that before and and i think that's that's totally right in that you have uh my approach to the movie might be completely different that's, if i didn't yeah. understand any of this but i went with a guy who one of my friends who i went with and never had never read the book had never seen the original movie um but he was just a sci-fi guy and a huge nerd um and he loved it so he he didn't he didn't need it he said he was confused about some things but he said i understood that those were things that i'm just gonna i'm gonna learn about those things later and i can just leave those aside so that's why part two is really important because a lot of the things that probably are question marks here or probably answered in the second part. I think what happens with Villeneuve is that he just kind of cuts out some of the world building, but then he makes you focus on the image itself. So a lot of the spaceships, a lot of the space travel, a lot of the costumes and the cinematography, I think it, it it's two and a half hours because he forces you to appreciate those scenes with those wide shots and like these giant pyramids and buildings and whatnot. Um, you talked about Gurney Halleck. So I don't know if you noticed, but the scene where he is introduced to Paul is almost identical to the 1984 one. Yeah. Even some of the lines are identical where they kind of engage in this fist fight. Taken directly from the book. And another thing too, that's more of a movie reference than a, or a movie Easter egg than, than a book Easter egg is, um, Paul, it's a very quick throwaway line. And I actually didn't catch it until I was kind of skimming through the movie uh, on HBO Max afterwards. I did that kind of the day after I saw it is Paul makes some reference to Gurney playing him a song. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's a reference to I mean, it is a reference to the book as well, but it's a reference to, I think, almost to the first movie. Like it's Villeneuve or, you know, the creative team basically nodding and being like, we're not going to do that, but okay here you go fanboys yeah gurney <laughs> gurney's a bard okay yeah. i think you do see gurney's instrument over his shoulder in like one shot oh interesting oh that's amazing i gotta i gotta go check that out it's very quick i think i think it's when they're they're um lining up with all their armor when they first arrive on arrakis but i'm not sure yeah it might have been it was so quick it might have even just be like a weapon on gurney's shoulder and oh, not okay. the the stringed instrument that he's known for but that's really cool but i like on that note i did notice that other than Lady Jessica, I feel like a lot of the characters in House of Shades, even House Harkonnen, which we'll get to later, I thought a lot of them were underused. I really wish we had more of Oscar Isaac. Um, I think he was perfectly cast as Duke Leto. The part where he's captured and he meets the Harkonnens, that, we can talk about that scene too. That was a little, I, I think, fell a little short in my opinion. Uh, maybe because I was looking forward to some more personal feuding between the two houses it seemed like it, it it looked like the way it was set up it feels like they had their meeting for the first time but anyway but uh duncan idaho uh through fear um i thought they were all kind of underused um what did you guys feel well if, if we're just talking about the meeting between uh the baron harkonnen and uh, duke leto like i actually thought that that whole progression of events was way better handled here um on a from a screenplay level basically because i remember watching the lynch version the 84 version and being totally confused over who was where 
you know, what what exactly was going on. We knew that there was some chaos happening and there were soldiers attacking the palace, but <laughs> where people were ending up and and what the ultimate fates of a lot of the people were was very confusing to me when I watched that movie. Whereas here, even though maybe we got less material with each person, at least it proceeded in a fairly understandable way for me. And so when we did get to that showdown, or wasn't really a showdown, more of just like uh, interrogation, I was like, okay, I know he's got the th- he's got the tooth loaded with the poison. He's looking for an opportunity to crunch it and try to make his his last ditch attempt to kill the Baron. But you know, obviously, it doesn't go very well. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, fine. I know I know where I am in the story compared to you know the the first attempt. I guess the battle or the invasion scene, whatever you want to call that scene, uh, I, I I'd like to call that out just as being one of the best sequences for me in the movie. I mean, so, really exciting. Um, and just incredibly well shot. You know, Villeneuve knows how to shoot something like that to where it isn't confusing. You do know where everybody is at all times. You know the stakes are high. I liked that they, you know, the way that 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 whole scene was or that whole sequence was was set out. You, I, I even liked a little bit how, like, for example, they don't show really what happens to Gurney. Yeah, he's just like. He's just kind of shown off riding into the sunset and you're like, maybe he'll be okay. <laughs> and then, you know, but, uh, you know, unlike, uh, you know, unlike Duncan where it's clear, like Duncan escapes and, and you know, uh, obviously uh, Duke Leto gets, uh, gets captured and Dr. Yue like is betrayed by uh, the Baron and things like that. I really liked how, how that was all done. Um, and the, and the visuals and sound and stuff of the, um, the bombs that the I don't know what you call them. I'm sure there's an in-universe name for them, but the bombs that they fire at the the Atreides like gunships, the ones that like slowly penetrate the shields and then they blow up. I thought that was all like really really cool. Um, so all that stuff was all that stuff was really was really great. I thought that sequence was really well done because it was actually kind of scary the way he had filmed it. Agreed. Where like Duke Leto wakes up in the middle of the night and he's like, "What's going on?" and he slowly uncovers the plot. Um, so I kind of forgot to mention, but we didn't get the weirding module in this film, did we? Like, is it going to be introduced later or no? Like, it's just something that they're just not going to do with because they already have that shield thing. I feel like they're not going to do it. I feel like they're keeping this, um, as simple as possible. It's kind of like one of the things that's, it's certainly mentioned in the, in the, in the other books. I, I honestly cannot remember whether it's in the first book or not is they really don't make much mention of firearms at all. Um, in the universe, there are, I think they call them laser guns, something like that is like the person link, but other than, but in the movie, it's just like, they have these dart guns, it's swords, dart guns and swords, right? It's, and that's now the, again, the in-universe reason for that is because with the shields, you need a slow moving projectile and lasers and, and things like that are, are move too fast. And so it's, it's, it became irrelevant centuries ago. Um, so I thought that, 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 that all that was really neat. And, and I liked again, how, I, I guess this is more my personal taste. Not everybody's going to like this, but it's like, you have a universe where faster than light travel is possible. And you have like these, like, how do the ships like land and take off, you know, in atmosphere with such ease, but they have to use balloons to, <laughs> to float the harvesters into the field. All that stuff is just like, cool. Cause it's just like, you know, that's mid-century sci-fi, yeah. you know, it's just like. <laughs> old technology mixed with future technology yeah. and and let's not worry about how it works. Um, so you have all that advanced technology and stuff, um, 
but they use swords. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, that's really cool. And, and I like how they just, and, and, and again, I think it's a stylistic choice to just not even, you know, it would be, the, I think the only reference to that really in the film is Gurney at one point says, the slow blade penetrates the shields. That's it. That's all he says. And that's, I feel like that may be in the book, but I feel like that's a line to the audience to be like, in case you didn't get it by the blue and red color scheme, a slow moving thing gets through the shields and fast moving things don't. Yeah. And I think that was actually the first sign that we kind of figured out that this wouldn't be like a super brutal movie, despite how scary the Harkonnens looked. Like I remember in Jodorowsky's Dune, he talked about Duke Leto getting captured and then getting his limbs cut off by the Harkonnens, like being tortured. Um, through fear in the 1984 versions gets tortured too and we don't really see it but it's implied that he does Uh, we don't get a lot of this in this one and I'm kind of curious so after Leto gets captured he kind of meets the Baron and then he he bites into that tooth and then he like kills the whole whole court and everything and then the Baron escapes but that was like really our first only interaction with the two I thought they would flesh out the the feud a little more because if you know the backstory, uh, Atreides is actually related by blood to the Harkonnens, is he not? They're cousins. Yeah, he's also the grandson, isn't he, of Baron Harkonnen? Because Lady Jessica's mother was raped by Baron Harkonnen. Yes, yes, you're talking about Paul now, not Leto. No, not Leto, Paul. So I, I just figured that between in that one interaction that they had, there'd be a lot more, maybe a little more background, a little more politics in it. But they play it pretty straight. I think, too, they I mean, they, they play down some of the the kind of universe spanning uh, conspiracy by the Bene Gesserits in this version of the movie where, you know, what one thing you do learn from the book is just how deeply rooted that plot is. And you do eventually learn, you know, the, the stuff about Lady Jessica being the product of a Harkonnen rape. So then you get the, um, you get this revelation of sorts. And you, I guess it's towards the end of the first book where it's like, oh, wow, Paul is not only is he like being advanced to this sort of chosen one status because he is the product of an Atreides and a Bene Gesserit, but also that Bene Gesserit is a Harkonnen or Harkonnen. So you get this mixture of like all of the things, which I guess is supposed to help reinforce the idea of him being the, the absolute perfect being or something. Uh, they also cut out fade the sting character. Did they? I think they're saving him. I think he's being saved. Oh, okay. Cause there's no, you're right though. Uh, I remember when the casting was, was announced, I think it was announced in two or three pieces. Um, if memory serves and it was, you know, it was like, here's the main cast. And then they kind of would just add a few at a time. And I remember a friend of mine saying like, who's playing like who's playing fade like who wait, who is who's that going to be who's going to be the new sting and and you know we're tossing out ideas and stuff and then it just never got announced and i and i you know i think before uh, before last year before it came out i was like maybe it'd be one of those things where it's like uncredited and then it's just in the movie i didn't know um but then it became clear like either they're cutting that character out completely because i feel like he's kind of been replaced by by the duke's nephew um rabin so either they're replacing him with rabin or they're saving him for part two to have some kind of you know harkonnen version of paul right because it does this happen in the books but paul kind of takes control of arrakis by killing um fade in combat upon the fremen had already militarily beaten the harkonnens and the, and the emperor's forces so they they kind of had them by 
by the throat. And then I think they they do a last ditch thing where they say, all right, well, we you might have beaten us through military force, but like we we'd propose a, a trial by combat to finish it off okay. or something. And the other big change was uh, Dr. Kynes is one, a female now, and also a very different mentor, in my opinion, than Max von Sydow. Mm, true, yeah. Totally different characterization of that role, something that's an interesting choice. I don't know how hardcore book readers will have felt about that, but it's. I think it's. it makes sense. Like One of the big choices, I think thematically, one of the big things that, and I've heard him say this, um, Villeneuve has said, he really wanted to make this he saw through the through the book that this is a very female powered movie or story i should say um yes the it takes place in a, like a, in a you know a paternalistic society where like the emperor's a man and the head of all houses are men and all that stuff but to like to robert's point that he made a few minutes ago the bene Gesserit are are actually the real power brokers in the universe and you know you have Chani being an important, uh, you know, she doesn't lead the Fremen, but she's an important figure in the Fremen and all this stuff. So he even like I, I think I remember reading uh, or seeing an interview with with Villeneuve where down to the soundtrack, that female vocalization on the on the uh, the great Hans Zimmer score is that was a, a deliberate choice to make it to kind of see the idea in your head that this is a really like female focused or female centric plot that that drives that forward so i thought that was i thought that was really um really interesting and i think i think that's one of the key reasons why they would have made the choice probably early on to change uh dr kynes into into a one one to get another speaking role in there um and an important one and two to make it again she is a a a force in the movie that's like uh that's really interesting because she's not a good guy or a bad guy and you're not really ever sure of what her motivations or goals are. Because yeah. in the in the 1984 movie, it's like Max von Sydow is very suspicious early on. But like Atreides wins him over quite quickly. And it doesn't quite happen in this movie the same way. And in the 1984 version, Paul has always been surrounded by really great mentors and, and teachers. Even Dr. Yue is like has his interests in mind even when he betrays the house. But I didn't get the sense from all the characters in this film. It felt like Gurney and Duncan played really outsized roles. Thufir was kind of weird. He was kind of like a human calculator. He didn't seem to have that fatherly figure, that fatherly bond that he had in 1984. In the and he immediately tries to quit when he screws <laughs> yeah, up. Exactly. Um, Wellington Yue, I think, is a really interesting character, but he doesn't really, uh, you know, uh, have that much interaction either. So. Uh, have, having Dr. Kane's kind of be like an antagonistic force sometimes was a really interesting decision, in my opinion. She acts somewhat neutral. Like she uses her position, her like imperial decree to to shield herself from having to like make a decision or take a side. Um, and I really saw that as that's the the that's such a Fremen opinion, right? Like, you know, she says one of the last lines she has is I'm Fremen. Um, even though earlier she kind of is like on the fence about that. She doesn't really say that she's from, she's like, oh, I mean, I've lived among the Fremen. She doesn't say really. Yeah. And then later she, she's like, I'm Fremen. So like, that's her side. So that's why she doesn't choose, you know, Empire or she doesn't choose Harkonnen or, or Atreides. She stays neutral because that's 
the Fremen really are neutral. They're loyal only to Arrakis and themselves, and they don't care about these like petty politics. So that's where I really saw her role coming at landing. Uh, the other thing I kind of want to talk about was Harkonnen. They are terrifying. Loved the design. Well, they're not gingers and pedos anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I think somebody said they made the Baron less evil. And I said, no, they, they didn't make him less evil. I said they made him less mustache twirlingly evil. True. Yeah. Like, you know, it's very easy. And I think, again, I don't think this is necessarily like a bad choice on behalf of the 84 team. But, you know, you want to make him evil so that you give him like these like caustic sores on his face. And, you know, he's ugly and he's got this really comical way of moving around the way that he floats around like a balloon in the original movie. <laughs> um, and, and in this, they made him they make all these choices to make him. Yes, he's like you know so obese that he can't even walk on on his own power anymore but he's he has this weird like strength about him uh he has a weird presence like that scene in the ste- when he's having a steam bath and uh and yeah and he floats and out. robin yeah. is no i don't think he even well he does his back things turn on at the end of that scene but it's it's um his mentat and uh, uh, Beast Robin are talking to him, and Beast Robin doesn't understand. He's kind of dumb, and he doesn't understand why the em- the emperor is doing what he's doing. And he said, "You know, when is a gift not a gift?" He says that great line. And he uh, the the Baron is just like wiping the sweat down from his head, past his face and stuff. And I thought that scene, I think, is a direct reference to Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, because um, he's sitting in that position. It's it's in the jungle and stuff, and he's. He's shown mostly in shadow and he's just like wiping sweat from his bald head. And the one shot that like really is, I think, scary, but also really impressive is is later when they reveal that the Bene Gesserit are in cahoots with the Harkonnen to betray the Duke and his family. And the, he has that little tiny speech about like my Dune, my Arrakis. And he floats up and he's wearing this like really long, I don't know what you call that garment tunic yeah that's exactly what i was thinking it's like a long tail but it extends him it it makes him look like he's a hundred feet tall that's it yeah it makes him monstrous and just the way he floats straight up and it's like i thought that was one of the best little shots in the movie i love how the like specifically with the with the harkonnens while we're talking about them it almost reminded me of what yodorowsky was trying to do with hr giger in his version of the movie because you know, they they famously got Giger to do a bunch of, of concept art for that attempt at the movie. And you see, I mean, if if Villeneuve wasn't deliberately trying to do that, again, to your point, Matt, like it's it's so similar that it, it just it, it still works. It still really elevates the material because you get all this kind of like oily black shaved heads, um, like almost insect like kind of stuff. They even have that human spider hybrid thing in that one shot. I was going to say, yeah, like. Literally, that's actually a really good point. I didn't make the Giger connection, but you're 100% right. How how close was this to some of the stuff um, that you saw in that um, in that Alien prequel movie that came out, you know, like 10 years ago? Oh, like Prometheus, I think. Prometheus. There's a lot of visual similarities with some of the, which is, and of course, like Prometheus and Alien is, is ripped straight from H.R. Giger. And yeah, it totally makes sense. A lot of the Harkonnen stuff is... Giger-esque I mean it lacks some of the the 
it lacks some of the Giger, uh, like je ne sais quoi. Like there's no uh, fetishism kind of yeah, stuff. There's no weird animals. There's no vaginas. E- there's no vaginas <laughs> there or anything. We've got the worms for that. But like other than that, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing there. But the the black, like the everything's wet and slippery and gross. Yeah, visually, um, it's so much different from 1984 because that one was so bright. Because you had the Parkinins with the red hair and then they got like the fancy robes. And in this one, it looks like jet ink black and it looks so cool. So I really liked Piter's character in the original film and he's kind of underused in this one. I'm kind of disappointed and that's a minor gripe of mine because David Dousmalkian, who plays him, is, is a really good character. Actor. Mm. Oh man, when I saw it was him, yeah. I was like, perfect casting. at first I was like, I agreed. I saw and I was like, who is that actor? Like it took me a minute yeah. to, to figure it out. Cause I had seen uh, suicide squad. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which he's he, polka dot he plays a uh, polka dot man. And I was like, Oh, it's, it's him. And he's just, I'm like, Oh yeah, no great, great choice. Cause he's, he can ride that line between like, you know, sniveling toady, but also it's like, no, he's, he's conniving. And, yeah. You know, he's got his own, he's got his own thing going on. Like he's playing his own game. Do you guys want to talk more about Chalamet or no? Cause I don't know. Like he's very central in this movie. I just I didn't like him in this role. I mean, you, you don't like him in a lot of roles. <laughs> well, true, because I still see too much of like uh, "Call Me by Your Name" in every single one of his roles, and he's kind of pouty and mopey, and I, I don't know, a kind of reflective of the hero we have these days. Like in the eighties and nineties, the action hero had no weaknesses. He's he's definitely very vulnerable, and I don't know if I like that screenwriting choice because he's. In this story, um, because we're missing so much from part two, he's like a preordained hero. He he doesn't play it like one. So are you both not Chalamet fans? I, I'm not a fan, but I, I like his work in in the sense of like, yeah, I respect it. Yeah, let me clarify. So I think Chalamet is a good actor. I just don't like him in this role. That's fair. That's that's a fair that's a fair choice. In terms of Chalamet's casting, I'm, I'm cool with that. And in terms of, um, you know, I, I'll disagree with you, Jason, on the way that they wrote it and the way that that he played it in that if you read i i'm actually some of this is not my own thoughts because it's i like i said i haven't read past the first book but um Mm. if you know anything about what happens to paul kind of in the second and third books i don't know exactly when he he dies one of the main themes of the dune series is not to blindly trust leaders and prophecies and things and things like that and 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 one of the things that i think then one of the mistakes of the 84 movie is you have Kyle MacLachlan and he's a little bit more of a traditional sci-fi hero. Um, and whereas in this movie, you have Paul who definitely starts the movie as, you know, he knows he's destined for great things. And he has this feeling because of the visions and the Bene Gesserit training and stuff like that. He knows that there's something that he doesn't quite understand. And they definitely could have made the choice, I think, to make him like this, you know, oh, he feels for the Fremen. They, they kind of hinted that a little bit. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, he's there because he wants to make, you know, the Fremen have, have been oppressed and he's there to, to, to rescue them. But I think by the end of the movie, you, you start to get a sense where, Sh- which I think Chalamet is doing a good job at setting this up. And we'll really see in, in the second movie but i think that chalamet is already starting down that path of like paul's actually not a good guy he might be the protagonist of the movie but he's not a hero um in like in the story but wouldn't that also depend on where what or what parts of the story part two covers because if you end part two where chalamet is like the rule of arrakis and you don't see him become the villain then you know playing him the way they did doesn't make as much sense to me. 
But if you go beyond that and say Paul in the end becomes this ruthless emperor, he wages war against all these different planets, kills billions of people, then I get where Chalamet is coming from. But if it doesn't end that way, then I'm not so convinced. That will be very interesting. I My prediction right now is, uh, I know that your show is not really a predictions show, but um, <laughs> my prediction for the second part is, I think what they're going to do with Paul is, I think they will finish where the first you know, book finishes. I don't mean book within the book. I mean the actual first novel, Dune. I think the the story will finish there. I don't think they'll go much into any of the sequels, not in this movie. And I think what they'll likely do is they'll show a side of Paul where his he starts to lose his humanity. I think that's what they're going to do. Like as he gets, you know, as he gets more addicted to spice, as he's as his powers grow, as he really becomes like the future god emperor that he's going to be i think they're going to start to strip away his humanity a little bit and so he'll lose a little bit of his like you know caring for individuals and things like that and and i think they'll really start to move away with that And i think the beginning of that slide is when he defeats the fremen in the duel at the end of this movie right one of the things that i thought was really cool in the movie and i don't recall this being in the it certainly wasn't in the 84 movie and i don't know to what extent this is in the book i know it's mentioned but the bullfighter imagery that's used throughout. Oh yeah. Oh right. And I think it's a, it's it's. I thought at first I'm like, oh, they're gonna do a real thematic connection here with the bullfighting, like because they 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 make reference to the grandfather who died fighting a bull or you know fought bulls or whatever. And they the connection I think is, and they they do reference that bull that little statue that uh, that Paul has of the guy um, fighting the bull, and they do make I think some connection with that when it's like. Duke Leto knows that it's a trap from the jump. He absolutely knows that. They don't specifically call that out, but as there's a certain line of dialogue when he's talking to to Lady Jessica um just uh just before I think they get attacked like the day before or something like that where he says I just thought we'd have more time. He knows it's coming. He knows it's a trap because he's not stupid. And I think the connection that they make there is that you know, Paul says to, to Duke Leto, like, you know, grandfather used to fight bulls. Like, how come we're not, you know, facing problems? I know. And he's like, yeah, well, look where it got him. And uh, so he's like, they even show it like when he's when he's getting ready to to put his ring in the seal. And and he's like hesitant, you know, where it's like this is the deal of a lifetime. This is going to be this is going to secure his house's future. But he knows that not everything is, is what it seems. So it's like it's very much like I'm going up against the bull right now. And, and, and so when the attack comes, he's not really all that surprised. He, he knows it's, he knows it's coming and he's just like, well, you know, this is, this is it for us. Like, we're not, we're, we're not prepared to fight this particular bull at this, at this particular time. So I thought that was really cool. The way they, the, the way that they did that rather than focus on the, um, like the book really focuses on like, who's the traitor? Is it Lady Jessica? Like they, there's that whole thing, which is cool, but they just decided not to go that route. And I thought this was a, a, an interesting kind of, and to your point, Jason, like you're missing some of that political stuff. I think that was a nice, very, very minor nod towards that of just like, Leto knows what's up. He knows what's coming. He just doesn't know when and he doesn't know exactly what. Well, also, I don't think they really fleshed out Dr. Yue's betrayal all that much either. Nope, not at all. Not at all. In the movie, it's super simplified, just like Harkonnen, or Harkonnen has his wife and he needs to get her back. Just simplified, and I think that's a good choice. Um, the very last thing, I'll, uh, they made the same choice in the yeah, 84 version. I believe too, I 
where so, it's it's kind of glossed over. But it, yeah, yeah, but in the book, like the first, I don't know, quarter of the book or a good first portion of the book is all about who is the betrayer. And that's in both both movies, it's completely glossed over. The last thing I will say, if I, I mean it this time, the last thing I'll say of what I liked is one of my favorite sequences besides the battle, the attack sequence was uh, the Sardaukar, the sequence on, with the Sardaukar warriors. Oh, on, yeah. On the, I think the planet is called Sardaukar, the, the Imperial warriors. Um, the, the, that like throat singing, like that's like a, whatever, it's a prayer or whatever it is. Like it, that was really cool. Just sonically, I thought that was really cool. The look of that planet is really cool. And I love the image of Jason. You said something earlier about how the movie's really not all that violent or it's not all that brutal. This was some of those brutal shit in the movie. It was the, some of those Sardaukar guys, or at least I assume they are, are set being sacrificed. They're hung upside down on these stone blocks and they're bleeding into, and it's being mixed with rainwater. They're bleeding into these big troughs and those guys are just scooping buckets of blood and painting the other warriors faces with it. And I was like, Man, that is so cool. Like those Sardaukar guys were my, the Sardaukar warriors were my favorite parts of the movie. Like towards the end when they get attacked, when the, when Paul is, is hiding and they just do that scene. It's one of the few scenes where there's no music, at least at the beginning. And they just kind of float down like soundlessly, man, that was cool. Like those guys were like the, the, the design of those guys was really cool. And um, just like, they're like excellent warriors. Like Harkonnen warriors are not supposed to be very skilled, but those guys are like a step above thought that was really i thought that was really neat what's it like to walk into this movie cold that's that's like, my question that's yeah. the guy i want to talk to and and i'll go even further than that i want to see like the average popcorn muncher like i want to know what that guy thinks about this movie it's like are you gonna get this at all that was my question because there are quite a few people in my auditorium where like the lights went up when and a couple went like looked around at each other and be like that's it i, I didn't get anything out of yeah, it right. um, yeah right so that's why i had that question about you know for us it makes sense not to have the exposition but i wonder for others if it does or not i really think that there are only a few ways to tell this story you know in less than three hours the fact that they that they did it in less than, than three hours is frankly a miracle like how do you tell this story in that time effectively um, and like, you know, and let things breathe. Basically what I'm learning here is that we, we need to have like a call in show where we have average people who have no uh, understanding of Dune, uh, call in and quiz, uh, mostly Matt, but all three of us, and we will try to answer them. But it has been quite a conversation. I think, I think we've, we've covered this in great detail, but clearly there is many, much more to be explored. There's a whole movie out there that we still need to get um so come on wb legendary pictures we need that but uh, matt thank you so much for guesting on this episode for being here for episode 100 it's been uh quite fun to, to get to this number and to uh cover such a an amazing movie for for that auspicious anniversary jason any final words uh no but uh thank you again matt for coming on i've known matt for a long time so we were college buddies so no i just want to say thanks uh thanks so much both of you for for having me on and especially for uh, on you know the hundredth episode for anything is uh that quite an accomplishment so what i'll say uh you know uh, on behalf of i suppose your your audience of which i'm among uh congratulations on 100 episodes um i think you guys put out a, a you know a great product 
and uh, I'm, I'm just happy to be uh, a, a very, very small part of that uh, of that history. And so here's to 100 more. Hey, awesome. Thank All you. All right. I'll just say until the next episode, thank you so much for listening. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto. My name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. And that's Matt in Halifax. All right. <laughs> The Extra Buttery Podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Jason Chen and Robert Snow. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter.